Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Rabbi Uri Allen. He is a guitar-playing father of three who loves cooking, traveling around the country to see his favorite band, Fish, and learning and teaching Torah. He's a great guy and a good friend. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Rabbi Uri Allen. Uri, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. It's great to be here. I'm sorry it couldn't be under uh, under less trying circumstances um, just for Israel and uh, my prayers as, as are many with uh, Israel right now. And so, um, yeah, but, you know, we've, we're, we planned this out and we're going to go through. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate you saying that. It's, uh, it's good to have not the news to look at. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to have other kind of conversation. This is my very first podcast guest of appearance. Well, look, I, I'm, I'm, I, I've had many, uh, many folks on and it's, it only gets better with you. So, um, we, we know each other through this strange app called Clubhouse, which that's how we become friends. We've, we've never met in person. We're actually seeing each other in a video call, but we've spent hours and hours and hours and hours talking in this, on this platform and, uh, and privately, you know, on the phone and whatnot. Do you want to try to take a stab? Like when people, you know, when your rabbi, rabbinic colleagues and people in your congregation say, what is this clubhouse thing? What do you say? I'm curious. If I'm being totally honest, it's it's a little bit of a secret, my, my clubhouse. Um, I don't know. It's kind of just for me. Um, but when I do bring it up and when I'm feeling kind of good about it, you know, I say like, look, you can meet people all around the world. You have these really interesting conversations. You meet smart folks, even people who you might actually want to be, um, want to be friendly with and connect, you know, IRL in real life. So, but I gotta say, I I hate it. I hate that place. <laughs> <laughs> I I hate that place. I I anybody who asks about it, they're like, oh, should I join? I'm like, no, don't, don't do it. It's um, I wish I spent less time there. Although, despite having met you. It's good. And I like, you know, I like some of the people to talk with. I I want to challenge you a little bit on this because you're there all the time. I mean, you're there a lot. I mean, you hate it, but love it. I mean, is this a, I, I, it's sort of like people that hate an addiction or something. And yet you're there, you show back up at the bar or something. I mean, it is, you're there a lot. And, and uh, you, 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 and you're an active, I mean, people, when I told people that I was going to have you on my podcast, they were thrilled because they, you know, you're you're kind of a personality on the app and uh this is i mean you could get off the app but you 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 spend a lot of time there as i as do I. yeah i i get some value out of it but despite it's being frustrating and it's interesting being a communal leader on an online space with people you don't share in real life community with and the ways in which you actually do do your work on the internet that way and i think when i've embrace that opportunity to be rabbinic there. Um, 
I've felt very validated about it. And I think folks have felt appreciated about what I'm bringing to them. Um, the internet, people are lonely. And I think the internet, despite it looking connective, is also lonely. Um, so when I can find it in myself to be there uh, in that capacity, I think it works out great. And you have said this to me recently, a couple of days ago, we were in a room with some people that were making incessantly silly arguments. I think I texted you and I said, why do we have to deal with this argument over and over? And you texted me because people are stupid and you, we are lonely and bored. And I said that that's done. Enough said. This is why you're a rabbi. I mean, this is this. This could have been the Rambam sermon. I mean, this is something uh, you know, <laughs> this this is brilliant. Look, it's a real we live in 2023. Let's say what's going on in the right. I think this is this is widespread loneliness, widespread disconnection and not. And don't get me wrong. I think there's like a reorganization taking place. I just think we're in the middle of that process of like older things breaking down and having new ways of connecting. But we all work alone and we're on devices all the time. It, these are real. They impact us. These are real things. They're not just, oh, my God, my phone happens to like take me away from things. It really does. You know, I mean, you're you're a rabbi practicing rabbi, you know, running around doing rabbinic things in the Northeast. If you could choose to be a rabbi in a different time, would you? Is there a century, a context other than the Northeast and the United States? I mean, you've 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 studied and been all over the place, but I mean, if you could get in a time machine, if 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 God sort of said to you, "All right, I'm giving you a, a, a one-off here. I'm going to let you transplant your rabbinic vacation to the 13th century, the 8th century," you could be in you know, the Middle East, you could be in Spain, you could be, is there, is there a time you would rather be in? I've never been asked that question. That's beautiful. Um, hey, I, I, I'm I a professional here. Okay. Rabbi, you're very good. Come on. Yeah, come you're on. Very good. You're very good. I think my intellectual curiosity would be to, um, want to be in the time of the Talmud, um, of the, of, of the formation, uh, like of rabbinic Judaism. I think it's the most creative, beautiful uh, kind of creation. And I'm very interested in sort of that intellectual world of the study hall in Babylon and in, in the land of Israel. But in terms of like being a rabbi and doing rabbinic work, yes, there are many challenges, especially in America today in American Jewish life, but I think it's the best time to be Jewish. I think there's never been a better time in the history of Jews to be Jewish. Um, we are the freest we've ever been. We're the most politically... Um, autonomous that we've ever been. Um, and, and I could go on, right? But I don't think there's been a better time to be a Jew, despite, you know, your people will point to rising anti-Semitism and a war in Israel and all that kind of stuff. But think about how that would have happened 200 years ago and think about how that's playing out now. It's very different. It's equally scary, but I think it's, it's very, very different, our capacity, right? And so people need, in terms of rabbinic work there, you know, what's the Torah of that moment? What's the Torah of this amazing, you know, place that we are in Jewish history? I think it's interesting you mention Babylon, and because I always think about this, I think we know a lot about at least redaction, editing of texts, and I think when the Jews are in exile, this is a very fruitful time because they're basically in in the sixth century, in the center of the intellectual and cultural world at that time. And and is this? Do you think this is sort of a turbo boost? for Jewish thinking, I mean, just to be, I mean, the exile, obviously a tragic thing, but yet also a thing where you have some of the smartest 
people in the tradition getting to interact with the smartest people in the world, and they're able to interact with creation stories that they see as oppressive and to do anti-imperial narratives. And just it just seems to me like the Jews at that period were just some of the most impressive storytellers in the history of the world. There's a great irony in Jewish history when you see where the biggest books of our library were created and then thinking about the centrality of the land of Israel. Like, think about this for a second. The Torah is not given inside of Israel. The biggest Talmud that we rely on most is not written in the land of Israel. Maimonides doesn't write in the land of Israel. The Shulchan Aruch, the last authoritative code of Jewish law, is not written in the... Oh, that actually is written in the land of Israel. I take that. Um, and the centrality of the, of the place, right? So we have always this, um, you know, place and things that are portable and tangible. Uh, portable that way, right? So, so the ways in which we've experienced, in absence of the land, we've we've highlighted the intellectual tradition. Um, that's why I say, like that that time in the sixth century in Babylon, it must have been incredibly not just in the Jewish um, intellectual philosophical circles, but it must have been incredibly exciting generally. It's the cosmopolitan center of all of the cool thinking going on. Um, and the ways in which you can, they, they tried to preserve, and I think did preserve really well, a land-based, temple-based tradition with really no living memory of it, right? And preserve that. There's a, there's, so there's always this tension, I think, with the Jews of continuing to do what we do, right? Study our stuff, ask questions, uh, evolve and innovate, um, while doing so sort of without much, many other social capacities to do other things, so what we were left with was our Torah. So I um, I was talking with another rabbi friend of ours from the Clubhouse app. Uh, so I'm not going to, I won't, uh, I'll let him remain nameless, but I was, I've been rereading the Bible just, um, you know, so I'm, I'm starting with uh, the Hebrew Bible and I'll move on to the New Testament when I finish. And um, I'm struck by in Exodus this, well, the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus when, um, the Pharaoh's like, well, your people can go to Goshen or whatever. And cause the Egyptians don't like shepherds. And so it'll be fine. And you can, and I thought about this tension of the shepherd, which can be nomadic and it, you can't be Imperial being a shepherd, right? It's just tough. I mean, it's very difficult because you're kind of, you got a herd, you're, you're flocking, you're herding versus the, your shepherd's hook is not a great weapon. It's not a great, not, it, unless it, you're, it, you're a ninja, maybe you read the shepherd's look. It's, you know, uh, but, but this, the Egyptians are, um, you know, they, they have land, they are agricultural and can domesticate land and, and powerful and big and not roaming all around. And this, and so I said, is this like the, is this have to do with the anti-Semitism? This rabbi says, absolutely. You, you know, this, this capacity for people to be a people without the traditional things that people need. And this is, of course, Rosenzweig says this and lots of other Jews. Election is this thing where you're chosen and yet you don't have your elect people without the normal things it takes to have a people. And I, do you think that people look at Jews and just say, damn it, how do you do this? And, and is this is some of the root of anti-Semitism, the, the, the confounding of how do you guys do this? Uh, do you mean, are you pointing to an envy? Or just a confusion? It could be both. It could be envy and confusion. I mean, this it, it, we fear what we don't understand, right? I mean, when I think about it, I can't understand it either. 
what what are the things? I mean, when you talk about capricious power and empire and the ways in which we've been flung around, it's it's pretty improbable, if not impossible. What what other people like this still exists? Hindus, right? Some Chinese culture, right? But like they had they didn't go anywhere. Hindus haven't gone anywhere. Chinese people stayed in China, right? They didn't have to contend with a pre- preserving tradition not in their uh, native place of the tradition. I think some of that, it's some of the anti-Semitism is about how come they keep cropping up? What is this thing, right? We should have been able to squash them. More and more, actually, these days, I hear things like different kinds of marginalized groups talking about little bits, you know, why don't you go study the Jews? Study what the Jews did in terms of survival and advocacy for themselves and communal organizing and things like that. Because look, right? Look at how successful they are. Not, and not, um, not the ways that the anti-Semites say, look, they're so successful, but like as a, as a model. I'm sort of flattered by that. And also, look, I don't really know, but my rabbi in me says in every generation, in every age, what is consistent is we studied the Torah, we lived together, we cared about each other. We protected each other. We did what we do unapologetically. I can't, I don't see any other consistent thing that has kept us. And that's, and that is confounding to people. But mostly it's confounding because I think for a lot of, for a lot of the world, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be around anymore. This is Carl Bart. What's confounding, right? What's confounding is not how we did it. What's confounding is that it worked. Carl Bart, my favorite theologian, who was allergic to natural theology and proofs for God's existence. One time he's asked it after a lecture, can you give me any proof for God's existence? And he just says the Jews and stops and that's it. Great answer. Great answer. <laughs> that, that, but it is where are the Immaculates, the Canaanites, the, I mean, rival neighbors, right. To your, to, you know, that, that all, had lots of cultural advantages as we we think at the in the ancient world at, at that time and this is the only people group that we know and can identify as some sort of continuity to the times of the bible and again it's not as though there's not changes and big developments and other things but there's still some sort of line messy line back to the strange world of the bible yeah absolutely yeah that's a great answer one word you got to have your one word answers guys <laughs> so so this is what I really want to talk to you about. I mean, we've and we could get on other topics, but you and I have spent a lot of time talking about biblical interpretation and as two guys who are in different traditions, but we often find it's easy to talk, which sometimes it's easier to talk about stuff from across traditions than it is with the people that annoy the hell out of you in your own tradition. But but this I, I'm fascinated. You're a good reader of the Bible and are there tips? I mean this is an ancient text. It's hard. It's people are removed from it. I mean, as you are doing the rabbinic thing, um, which is so textually grounded, how do you teach people? How do you pass on a love for this text? How do you tell them how to be re- better readers of the text? Because as you said, part of your the identity of the Jewish people has been knowing what to do with this text. And, and, and how do you embrace that and, and do it on the ground? So I want to be fair and say it's not the Jewish way is not the only way. Um, there's other ways, right? But I think you know our ways. I don't know. I don't know if I want to say original, but it's certainly really, really old, and it's ours. And I'll talk about it from sort of that perspective. I don't mean to denigrate other other traditions that have uh, also have this text. Um, one of the things for me is that Hebrew has got to be a part of it. You 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 must have if you are if you as an individual are not going to 
um, invest the time to get to get to know the Hebrew well enough, you got to select, if you're interested in this stuff, you have to select Bible translations and reading and scholars that are expert in that, um, are, are honest about it and sort of give it up to them. But the Hebrew is so important because it doesn't work like other languages. Um, and just like as you learn Spanish or French or Chinese or whatever, you're learning a culture at the same time as you're learning a language and terminology. And I remember, I remember, um, I used to teach 10th grade high school Jewish studies and there was a whole mini part of a unit that had to do with translation and interpretation. And I remember reading and giving an article to the students about when Harry Potter was translated into Hebrew and how certain link concepts, certain words in the book were so related to British culture, British private school culture, these um, foods that are right. Uh, the, the example I always remember is a, a, a lemon drop or whatever. There was some kind of food that they bought from the cart on the train to Hogwarts, but there was no cognate for it. So what they plugged in in the translation was an Israeli treat that fits the same spot that serves the same purpose. Right. But so that an Israeli could understand what they read. Right. So like this is always what's going on. Right. And I think so. So the and, and that I think is totally critical for folks who don't have the language skills is you're translating. You're going to be translating. Right. You're going to you're going to have things that you're going to miss um, and to sort of presuppose that there are going to be things you're going to miss. So the, the, the way you really have to read the Bible is to ask questions of it. You don't read it really for the information that's on the surface. I think you read it for the kinds of questions it produces and how you develop the answers to that question. For I'll give an example, right? Um, and these are silly, right? These are like, these are sort of silly, right? So I was studying this with a friend yesterday. Uh, there's a line in the story of Noah. They're getting out of the boat and it says, these are the generations of Noah, um, Shem, Ham, and Yafet, and Ham was the father of Canaan, period. Now, let me ask you, Scott, we'll do it. Just that verse, what does it say? This is what I would do with a student. What is it just, what's the simplest reading? What does it say? I'm your student right now? Yeah, go ahead. With what I know, I, I would say, I think yeah. Canaan is, um, this is sort of um, in Star Wars where something is significant where the background music starts going, do, 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 because he's going to be the father of, a really difficult group of people that are going to, are going to give Israel a really hard time. Um, and they're so alike, which is interesting because they're both, but, and, and also the seductive nature of, I think, Canaan's gods, because they're just up the hill. They're really, and they, and, and, and you're, and you're here, and you're here. Hey, I heard they have temple prostitutes up there. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's kind of the thing where I think you're saying like, Hey, this guy, you know, these people, which are a real problem, this is the guy. This is the jerk off that was that 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 did it. Right. So so one thing that you're saying is is the people who are reading the story already know that that's a signpost for some other reality that they know outside of the text. So when they read it, they know what that name means, what the descendants of those people are. We don't know that. That's not our. But it doesn't mean anything to us, right? Um, the question that we would want to ask on that text. One of the questions is. Why does it mention that Ham is the father of Canaan when it's saying these are the lineages of Noah? This is a foreshadow. This is a literary device. It's telling you we're going to say something about 
Canaan. This is the important thing. And then later in the passage, it says, who gets the curse? Canaan gets the curse. But who did the bad action? Ham. There's a question of the text that it's grappling with about if Ham is the one that did the showed the nakedness and reported to his brothers about Noah, right, and his drunkenness. But Canaan is the one that gets the curse. You have to explain how he's involved. Why does he get the curse? This is partially what that story is about. Punishment of people who weren't part of the thing, who weren't part of the sin, right? And it's a etiology, right? It's this sort of origin story of the Canaanites up on the hill who we have these kind of trouble with, right? The other thing it's telling us is that Canaan are our relatives. <laughs> this is significant in the story of Genesis, right? And the, who are, and the people we then meet later, they're our relatives, Moab and Ammon. These are not foreigners. They're cousins. This is all lost when you don't have those senses of cultural markers, right? The guideposts that the text, that the authors of the text are giving you. Um, By the way, I saw a meme, which I think gets at what you're saying for, for the young people out there, for the kids. They said 2,000 years from now, and the meme had said, um, people will understand the difference between a booty call and a butt dial. And that's why the Bible's so hard to read. That's right. That's a great, that's a great way to say it. Exactly. Um, and I was teaching a class one time to evangelical undergrads and I, and this was not that long ago. This is less than 10 years ago. And, um, I was teaching about textual interpretation and I put a, a, a political cartoon on the PowerPoint, you know, on the screen. And it was an eagle and a bear with boxing gloves. Not one student knew what it meant. And, and of course, you and I, we would doubt with it's the Soviet Union, America, this is Reagan, Gorbachev, all this stuff. And so just within a, a, a time of span, I could see. And I said, this is why when you read the book of Revelation or something or Ezekiel, you really don't know what's going on because you don't even know the political cartoon from a few years ago. I think you might be muted. I can't hear you. Oh, I, I lost you. Oh, there you go. I think. No, I can't hear you. Testing. Bring you. Oh, there we go. We're back. We're back. We're back. We know. Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah, okay. So I mean, there's this guy on TikTok I like. He's an academic Bible scholar, but also like we would love talking to this guy. He's he's us. Um, and he's like, people always say that the Holy Spirit helps you read the Bible. But if that was really true, there's all these people who say they have this Holy Spirit who are reading the Bible just backwards, wrong, incorrect, incorrectly. So then the question is, is like, if you're going to use academic tools or these kinds of these kinds of ways to know things about the text, what what does that have to do with or does that have to do with anything with a devotional life in relationship to the text? What does it matter if I know or if I have the, the idea that Canaan is a brother to the ancestor of the Semites, of the Israelites? Why is, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it tells me about families and it's significant because it tells me about how nations live with each other as descendants of families and relationships that evolve there. Um, and what it also tells me, and this is where maybe we'll talk about this, right? This is what I think is, when, when I say the Bible is true, this is what I mean. It's true because it's somebody's actual human experience documented. That's why it's true. And that's why we can use it. Yeah, no, I can't agree more. I mean, I think this, this and, and what's interesting is, you and I from different traditions can talk about texts and we, and we, I, I love, by the way, full disclosure, we were on the app today and somebody asked us, 
about what makes a successful clergy person. And I yeah. said, so, and I said something, and you chimed in and said, so Christian, so Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but I just want to ask you about, like, so this is something in my own journey with the text. If you ask me my favorite story in the Bible, um, whether the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, it's Second Samuel 9, uh, it's Mephibosheth. And I have a devotional attachment to that text. Uh, but then as I have studied critically, I'm like, wow, this is a little more mafioso than I thought it was. <laughs> where, 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 you know, this is Samuel's last, uh, or Saul's last descendant, um, and he's crippled. And David seems to say, hey, I'm going to, what can I do to, you know, um, because of the love of my best friend, Jonathan, I'm going to extend. And I read this, and I think it's so beautiful. And my Christian eyes see the Eucharist, right? See, the, uh, the, 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 he eats at the table forever, just like we're sinners. And we get to limp to the table and all this stuff. And when I say it critically, it's a little more mafioso. It's like, hey, you're going to live here, and I'm going to keep an eye on you at my table. Right. And it, isn't this the challenge of reading these texts? When we receive the text— <clears throat> We receive it in a context that the text was not given in, that the text wasn't written in. We have to jump over that gap, right? So your impulse to read it in the Christian way isn't isn't incorrect. It's simply what that text does in a Christian context, right? Which is a different question than what does the Bible think about itself, right? What's the story it's telling to its readers and its listeners? We, I think we have to have a bit of humility and say we aren't the— first intended listener reader of the text even if you want to say something about the eternal nature of it and it, it whatever you want to say in regards to that it, it's not written in our language right so yeah this is the challenge this is exactly it now what do you do with the tension you just created which is on the one hand i really want it to be about the eucharist but now i really know critically that it's this other kind of thing what's wrong with the complexity couldn't it be both when I isn't this, the, isn't when the I human experience isn't the human experience of something that's a little bit more gray? And when I preach this text, I've learned from the critical stuff because I I've said uh, in my better sermons on this text, I've said, look, when it when they're saying David gets is summoning Mephibosheth, don't think medieval dun 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 a guy in tights. Think Tony Soprano, like big guys with thick necks are saying, hey Mephibosheth, you're coming with us on the chariot. You're you're getting a ride. Um, so it's all there, right? It's all all of it's all there. It's all in play. Yeah, yeah, it's all there. Yeah. Do you have a favorite character in the Hebrew Bible? <laughs> I was thinking about my favorite story, actually. And I think my favorite story is Yehuda and Tamar. Oh, oh, that's my that's my all time favorite. Um, well, th- let's let's. I just think it's a linchpin. I yeah, I think it's the linchpin of Genesis. I think it's one of the I linchpins com- of. Completely agree. It interrupts the longest narrative, the Joseph narrative, and all of a sudden Judah is reinserted. And I couldn't agree more. I think this this is not bad editing, right? This is a this master is serial placement. drama. This, yeah. Yeah. This, this is master placement. And it, yeah. Yeah. So, right. So we're in the cycle of the Joseph stories, right? Joseph is a super huge, important person in the book of Genesis. Extremely important. And right in the middle of it, we have this stuff about Judah and his children and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who can't get pregnant. Her first husband dies. Uh, her second husband dies. Um, his second husband didn't want to uh, procreate on behalf of his brother. 
So he spilled his seed. He dies. Judah doesn't love the idea of giving his third son over to this woman for leveret marriage because uh, maybe he's going to die too, right? I think he's he's a little suspect of her. Maybe she's the one that's killing them. Right. I know, that's how I always read it. Sympathy for Judah, right? Like, it's three sons? Like, she's exactly. a nightmare. Like, this is, you know, like, she's a nightmare. You, you can imagine this. Right. So, and by the way, I mentioned leveret marriage, right? The whole story takes place in the context of if you're married in Israelite culture and you have no sons and the husband dies, the lar- the oldest living male relative has to take the place in procreated terms for the dead husband, right? Sort of marry the marry the widow. All of this is in the context of that. And this is so great social home. justice, right? Because she's then not left. Some of this is is the widow then is not left um, alone. I mean, she is folded. She she is still kept in a social protective. No, we would consider it patriarchal now, but but this is it. It seems barbaric by our standards, but this is ancient sort of. Hey, we don't leave anybody. With, no one's left behind. We should be we should be wary of saying it's like our social justice. It's misogynistic social justice. In other words, because the assumption is that she can't take care of herself on her own. And the assumption is, is that we build in primacy of rights and and um, progenitorship to the father. We release we, we remain it at the father side. Right. So there is been to the widow at the same time as it's taking place within a misogynistic patriarchal setup. But yes, there are benefits to her. So Judah says, go back home, hang out. When my third son is ready, you'll, you'll get him. Meanwhile, Judah's done mourning for his, his wife and sons. And he's like, I'm going to the party in the, in the desert. I'm going to get my best friend. We're going to go party. Um, and what do you do in ancient, right? It's the sheep shearing festival. Wild parties with the sheep shearing. You can only imagine. <laughs> scissors everywhere dying you, you, you just you can imagine it it's what like burning is, man if you want to party you want to party with the jizz yeah and you go to the sheep shearing festival and it's great so you go up to the to the town and come on you're two guys out on the out on the trail and of course at the crossroads who hangs out at the crossroads prostitutes right so tamar says to her i'm going to get what's coming to me i'm due this husband I'm due my children. I'm going to get it from Judah. So she dresses up as the prostitute, sleeps with him. Judah can't pay. Isn't this brilliant? <laughs> he can't pay. Well, I mean, look, I'll get you back. I just, oh, I just lost it. It's, uh, well, man, I'll, I'll get you back. And as a pledge, he gives to her his, basically his driver's license, right? He gives to her his signet and his seal, which he would use to sign documents, sign clay seals. That's the other thing, right? In terms of understanding the Bible, if you don't know what when it says signet and seal, signet ring, you you're lost. Yeah, you're lost. You're lost. What did he give her? Is this a giant stick? No, no. This is a trinket, right? Okay, but it's but it's got his name on it, right? That's the important thing. It's got his name on it. Meanwhile, later, right, the party's done, and a word gets to Judah: Tamar is pregnant, which this means adultery. Oh, so they have a conversation, uh, and it's great. She she says, whoever di- whoever these belong to. This is the father. And Judah looks at them and sort of sheepishly, and he's like, eh, you know what? She's right. She's more right than me. She's more right than me. Now, it's the conclusion of the story that makes it the most important. Because then we get, these are the generations of Judah and Tamar. And we go through the genealogy, and we get to Boaz, and we get to... Now, I'm the reader. I'm the ancient Israelite reader. These are all literary signposts. 
what I'm supposed to know and kind of experience is, is that out of this really weird family sex story, I get the grandparents of King David the Messiah. What a brilliant stroke to kind of place, let's call it contemporary exilic or post-exilic politics, backwards to the people that those political groups are named after. It's Now, if you lose that, think about what you lose in the text. All you have, uh, then you have to kind of defend adultery. Like what you're left with is like kind of a boring, you're just left with this, yeah. And then you get to talk about the, the conflicts between Joseph and David, right? Between the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, right? Judah and Joseph. And that continues when we get to, in the rest of the story of Joseph, you have all these interactions with Judah and Joseph in the Pharaoh's court and, and how that all works out. That's my favorite story, both because I think it shows the genius of the editors of the, of the Hebrew text, or at least the deliberateness of the editors of the Hebrew text. They're trying to say something about their own lives, right? And it's my favorite because I think it, it tells us something about the whole project. Part of the whole project is meant to tell us that what looks to begin broken actually can end in redemption, Oh, and then what I think is beautiful, and I mean, this is these are my Christian eyes, but um, you have this character study where Judah is in the early stories, one of the brothers that's conspiring against Joseph. I mean, he's you know he's there, he doesn't protest, he doesn't. Then you get this story. He says, "You are more righteous than me, right? I'm learning." And then he offers when 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 um when. When in in the end of the story, when Joseph is kind of doing manipulation because he can't get over it, you guys manipulated me. I'm going to manipulate you for a little while. And Judah says, "I'll give my life in the stead of Benjamin, so that my father's heart won't be broken." And this is um, the, the you know when you have this sort of da- Davidic figure that the, something about David is connected to God. I mean, he's for all his moral failures, he's really connected to God. And you see it in Judah, that Judah yes. is is getting the, the the spiritual vibes. He's understanding, this is what I need to do. I need to be not this younger guy that was so self-centered. I need to think about family and my father's heart. And this is, of course, I heard a sermon one time where uh, this Presbyterian minister said, and he was the father of the true Judah, Jesus, who laid his life down for us all. So this is Christian, you know, it's, it's, already, Absolutely. it's already there, right? I mean, it's, it's this sacrifice. So is it really everything Christians learn is from the Jews? <laughs> At least the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, uh, it's hard to say that anymore, right? But like, you know, I think we, I think you had good starting material. I think that over time, Christians developed their own their own traditions, but I think coming out of late Second Temple Judaism and like earlier inherited traditions, they're doing good. They're doing good. They're doing Jewish things, right? They're doing Jewish things, you know. So like that reading about Judah being the father of Jesus—that's not a, that's not bad read, right? It's a recontextualized read, putting that story and now in new context. But it's not it's not unsupportable, right? It works. Can we talk about Joseph for a minute? Though you and I have talked about this a couple times, but I always think. This guy gets such a gets the biggest narrative chunk in Genesis, and then basically drops out. I mean, there's not a lot of Joseph. Narr- and so, I, is this northern southern stuff where the, the the editors saying, "Look, we'll give you this guy in Genesis. We're gonna let him have a nice part of the story, a very nice part of the story, but the rest of the story, he's not a major character." And so, I mean, this it seems to me like an editing process. We're like, "Hey, we can't write him out of the story, 
but he's not going to be, the South is going to be the dominant story. So we're going to let you have a Northern hero, but the Southern heroes are going to be bigger. Yeah, all of this stuff works on authenticity and authority, right? The people who want to tell you it's about truth and history are wrong. This is about who gets to write the story, right? So the, so the very interesting question is, is, so why preserve the Joseph narrative at all? Why would you need to do that, right? Because, and part of the reason you would need to do that is because there's clearly a memory of that part of the history and they need to, they need to interact with that, right? And so there's another lesson, right? We don't whitewash our history out. We might, we might recontextualize it. We might um, have some revisionist things about it, but we tell human stories, right? The heroes in the Hebrew Bible, at least, are not superheroes. Definitely not the ones in Genesis. The ones in Genesis, I mean, if I'm being really cynical, a lot of them are terrible parents, terrible siblings, right? Why would it's you tell these stories like the about them? The evolution. It's yeah. a like the Clampets, right? I mean, these are, these are primitive people. Um, and they're not even great primitive people. I mean, they're kind of, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're regular people. That's the whole thing. They're just regular people. Um, so like the evolution of Judah that you just talked about, that's what else, what, uh, what better message of redemption could there be? <laughs> you get to, you get to ascend, you get to evolve, you can change, you can choose a different path. You can, you can choose to focus on the things, right? Not your own pride and embarrassment over your brother who tells you his dreams, but actually about your commitment to your family and your brother and your father. Well, that's a different story. So can we talk about the elephant in the room? He's always the elephant in every room, right? Jesus is Jesus. a big elephant. He's Jesus. big. He's big. He's a big elephant. Yeah. Tusks, massive, big ears. I I mean, as somebody who is, uh, and I sometimes send you uh, clips from the show The Chosen, which is the most Semitic Jesus I've ever seen portrayed. I mean, he's he's witty. He's sort of, you know, he's he's not this <laughs> Aryan Jesus. He's, he's funny. He's this brilliant kind of guy. I mean, how do you deal with this, with the, the just... Um, ubiquitous presence of Jesus as a Jew in North America. Like, how do you, who is it who Jesus is obviously a Jew? Yeah, I don't think about Jesus all that much. Right? How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about the Roman Empire a lot. You know why? Because they destroyed my temple. And this is, recent. I am here where I am now, you know, <laughs> existentially speaking as a Jew, is because of the Romans. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, Jesus, I think is, um, first of all, I think Jesus is a great teacher. I think he's a, I think his message in, in the Blue Ladder Bible, right? Um, when you just read the Jesus lines, I think he's, I think he's a fantastic teacher. Great messages. Um, and very little original, Jewish. original to him. You could find most of it rabbinically. There's a couple sayings. I, I've read dissertations on this. Um, there's like two or three sayings that you just can't find rabbinic parallels for but everything else you could find them yeah absolutely and i have a little bit of a guilty pleasure in certainly early christianity but other stuff because to the extent that we're all that the hermeneutic devices are not not only jewish but like ones that i still use and midrashically and all of this kind of stuff i just think i i'm tickled by the idea that like oh look at what you could do with these tools like, look at, look at how far they push. Look at how flexible they really are and how creative you can be with this word and that word and doing all the things that we talked about before. There's some, I think there's some, something very authentic about definitely the early couple centuries, authentically Jewish about the couple first centuries of Christianity. Um, and like, 
they thought they were Jews. Right. I have to like kind of give that up a little bit historically. Right. They didn't think they were starting something new. They thought they were being good Jews. So I got to like appreciate that on a historical level. And for 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 our listeners who don't know all this stuff, like, I mean, if you had Essenes, you had Sadducees, you had these people, Pharisees who became sort of the forerunners of what we consider rabbinic Christian, like what we call the early Christians, if you were a Roman governing the province, like this is just another group of weird Jews. We're dealing with all these weird Jews. And it's not until the Apostle Paul, right, where he's like, hey, we could recruit people saying, you want you want a little monotheism? You want to eat shellfish? No circumcision? Hey, I got I could put you in the God of Israel tomorrow with the warranty. With the warranty. That's right. Guaranteed. Um yeah, I think that's right. If you if you think about Christianity and rabbinic Judaism both as natural results of a late second temple Jewish um, cosmopolitan and sectarian landscape and a Roman occupation and a destruction of the temple, they, they both make sense. Even all the little splinter groups within at the time, it all makes sense. And, so, and then if you get that in that time, they're still living together. They're still talking to each other, right? Then you can really say something meaningful about the ways that this group saw, saw the tradition was not only because they thought it was true and authentic, but they're also now responding to a social phenomenon of somebody else who also has power amongst the community, right? And so right, right. that's and so that's where we that is that has remained where we find ourselves. I think in the relationship between Christians and Jews, who has the real authority over the Hebrew Bible? And you have taught me something that. I- I don't know if you remember telling me this, but I have thought, how does the historical Jesus, let's just say he didn't raise from the dead or any of the religion, just, but what you're saying, he's a good, he's pretty good. He's, he's got like a freakishly good ability to teach and he's got a command of the Torah and stuff. And I was like, well, how do you explain this? And you, and you said to me, well, easily he didn't have to be in these sophisticated schools that were lay, um, Torah sort of associations where you could have had a guy without a lot of means who could have learned Torah this way, like th- that he could have come up in in um, Second Temple Judaism without a lot of formal education. And you could just be this good if you were talented. I said that? <laughs> you did. You, t- you did. You told me there were like sort of lay associations. And the kind of thing where like he, where he could have just done this if he was gifted without a lot of, he he wouldn't have had to be in the pharisaical class or something. He could have I think you. Yeah, he would. Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't have had to be like some kind of elite, right, in order to access sort of like high level education. But it's it's clear he had exposure to lots of different kinds of Jewish groups, including Pharisaic groups, right, including sort of sect classic, right. And he's at the temple, so he knows some Sadducees, right. Um, you know, I think it's it's hard. You know, Paul gets a bad rap, but I think well, you know, honestly, he's earned it. Honestly, right. The, the, if you don't have a guy like Paul come along, Jesus might be just sort of seen as a first century great Jewish thinker, and we might quote him in Jewish texts, and the rabbis might have quoted him, and it might have been, he might have been an authoritative sort of member of the Sanhedrin or whatever. Like, I could have ima- I could imagine stuff like that had, had Paul not come along and had Christianity sort of really de- deliberately departed itself from Judaism. Um, didn't happen that way. Didn't happen that way, right? So... I mean, isn't Paul the P.T. Barnum of the first century? I mean, totally. he, he, he's a religious genius. I mean, 
he Jesus. never met Jesus. I told some a friend of mine who you and I both know on Clubhouse. She's an atheist, a lovely person. Well, wait a second. He wouldn't say he didn't meet Jesus. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> the Damascus Road, the Cape, the way. But I mean, he look. Did, he was by himself. I don't know, but he didn't, I'm just <laughs> saying he didn't walk around uh, with Jesus. I mean, he, he which is which is. An interesting, you look at Paul's writings, very, what you think of Jesus' ethical teachings, right? Like, very little of this in Paul. Uh, a little bit of love your enemies once in a while. He gets that, right? This is so big and so counterintuitive that this survived. A tits guy said, you got to love your enemies. Like, if a Roman soldier asked you to carry, which was a real thing, right? Like, when Jesus says, if they ask you to carry the pack one mile, carry two miles, which they could do. Hey, you, Jew. In Judea, I need my backpack carried. Jesus is carried the second mile. Um, Paul seems to know that. Um, but very little of anything Jesus actually said. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I have work to do on my familiarity with the Christian Bible. But yeah, that's... Um, I yeah, because with, all you, with all, all you need to do, that's what you need to do. Is really well, yeah, it's get just, more Christian. Uh, By the way, the funniest thing you ever said, well, one of the many on this clubhouse app that, you know, I'll put the link in the show, how to get to it. But <laughs> once some, somebody was saying Christianity could have even been more successful. And you just said, how much more successful do you want to be? <laughs> right. You're, you're kind of hard to top that. Yeah. I mean, there are what X percentage of all of the people in the world, a lot, a big, a big percentage. Yeah. But I guess in terms of like, you know, the elephant in the rooms is sort of to go back to that. Um, I think because I have sort of an appreciation of the earliest history of Christianity and then the later development of church history and doctrine, my issue with Jesus isn't primarily sort of theological, though I have that too. I just, I, I think it's social in the relationship between Christians and Jews and what the theological, how the theological differences have been made, ha have been leveraged to, for force, right? And and power and violence. And so I don't have anything against Jesus. Um, I have a problem with some of Jesus's followers, some of the things that Jesus's followers in history have done, some of the things that Jesus followers continue to do and preach in Jesus's name. Now, I'm, I'm not an authority on what a right, a correct Christian is. I, I don't get but my sense is that Jesus would be disappointed with a lot of people who say that they follow him. I think he would be sad. Um, I don't know. Like you see these memes also, right? Like Jesus isn't a Republican, right? Jesus is on the squad. Well, what, if, there, if, if Jesus came back, you'd get an email two weeks into it from your Republican brother-in-law in Tennessee saying, this guy's a socialist. He's healing people right. for free. I mean, what, what are we going to do? I mean, this is, you know, he's feeding people, he's healing people. It, this is dependency. But maybe let me get, hold on, let's do, let me give a, let's be hopeful about it. Maybe all of those people who are Republicans say, you know what? We've been abandoned because we never didn't get health care. Nobody, right? So we're going to go with the Jesus guy. He's actually giving it out, the things that we need. We don't care that it's free. We don't care that it's socialist or whatever we thought before. Now we're going to get it. Right, all right. Now because all those other people now abandoned us. Now, uh, now you're in fantasy. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, yeah, maybe they're going to say that. Yeah, my idealism gets me in trouble. So, when you think about your rabbinic career and what you're doing, and 
and you're getting in that age. I mean, I'm not going to reveal your age on the show or anything, but um, where you're thinking, hey, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've got options, but um, you know, you're not 24 or something. Um, do you have dreams you want to do, or is there some like synagogue kind of thing, like, hey, I'm going to go to Colorado, or, a, or I'll be a cruise rabbi and and just be blessing people? Ooh, I've definitely thought about cruise rabbis. I've definitely thought about that, but maybe in retirement, like that's a. I've definitely thought about that. You and I should what, talk I about mean, this because I think you and I doing an interfaith show, like that movie Keeping the Faith with... Um, oh, yeah. Oh, I think you and I would kill it on a cruise. That would be fun. Seven o'clock show is different than the 10 o'clock show. You got to come... Yeah, exactly. You got to come to both shows. We're, we're, you know. That's right. <laughs> I think what I... You know, when I see myself in my mind, what I am is... Uh, um, I don't know what you call it in uh, in English. In Hebrew, it's machgiach ruchani, a sort of spiritual director, right? Christianity has a lot of, right? That's exactly what it is. It's spiritual direction. You know, it's pastoring, it's worship leading, it's music, right? That's a big part of, you know, my spiritual nourishment. And you get to go around and, you know, bring these things to people um, and sort of help them, help them grow. I'm not interested in any one particular institution in terms of doing that work, but that's the kind of work that I'm really interested in doing. I think as, you know, to go back to a theme we said before, people are lonely, depressed, and bored. And if I have something to offer to sort of address that, fill a little bit of people's cup, um, I get a lot of, I get a lot of gratification in it. You know, here's a, here's a strange thing to say. I love funerals. I love doing funerals. Not because I like take any great, you know, I take pleasure in death or anything like that, but this is people's greatest time of need and someone needs to hold them in that. And meaning making, yeah. right? I mean, people need meaning making, meaning making. They, they need to sense and not to say, oh, this happened for a reason or any of that. I mean, they need to know that in a world where people die, um, because we all have eternity in our hearts. Kierkegaard says this or Pascal or somebody. That we, it's weird because we're the God who shits. That's Kierkegaard. That you, you know that you can imagine even as an infant so much more than you can, you're capable of, right? You, your fallibility because you can't hold your bowels. And that's the human condition, right? We're the God who shits. I mean, you can imagine so much and yet you're frail and captive to your finitude and your appetite sometimes, sadly. And for somebody to say, here's the meaning um, in, in the, the loss, there's nothing more sacred than that. Right. I think that's the most important work that pastors, rabbis, imams, pick your, pick your flavor, uh, can do, should be focused on. If you're real, if you're like a communal leader like that, that's what your people want from you. Yeah. They want a good sermon. They want a good program. They want a meal, blah, blah, blah. Right. But they want you to know your name. Right. And they want you to say, right. Hey, Sarah, How's your mother? I had a teacher in rabbinical school. His name's Ron Wolfson. And his, his, the thesis of his teaching is people, not programs. People, not programs, right? Everyone's like, how do we get the people to come? How do we get the innovative program? Let's get this band and let's pack them in. And we'll, if we invite the right things and have the right food, people will come. Well, not if, not if they don't know you. Not if you didn't call them and say, I want you to be there. Not if, right? You can't just send the email and expect people to show up. I mean, that's why my answer to uh, what's a good rabbi, right, is you got to know people's names. Sermon, good, fine. Can you give somebody meaning? Can you make them feel seen? 
and held in the happy times and the sad times. But you know, the weddings are easy. <laughs> if you can't get it, if you can't get it up for a wedding, <laughs> change jobs. I mean, come on. There's no big. Uh, there's no. There's no great secret in getting to the spiritual at the highest spiritual moments. What's What's harder, but not, but no less um, present and potent, is to be able to see the light and the holiness in the horrible moments. You know, there's that's a, a spiritual test. A Christian theologian. I don't think a ton of, um, but a charismatic guy. But um, John Shelby Spong, Bishop of Newark, New Jersey, and. But one of the most powerful things I ever read that he wrote was he said we ought to have a liturgy of divorce, and that people have you know that people who who have people who have spent lives together, people who spent lives together, we we do all these um, markings for their children for their birth, but when they end this relationship, there's nothing to say that hey God is even there in the end, and we send you both on new stories, and we have a liturgy of divorce. Oh, you guys you have it? one. You heard it? I yeah. didn't know that. I didn't know that. See, I'm yeah. learning. Today. It's a it's a, it's a script. It has to do with the witnesses. There's things that the couple says to each other, and basically, it's exactly that. It's a it's a commandments and rituals are markers, right? Of times so that we don't simply rush through our lives and say that's over. What's next? It's actually you have to actually end it. You have to have closure. And rituals help us do that because most of the time they sit on liminal space. They sit in transition moments between one kind of status and another kind of status, this kind of feeling and another kind of feeling, this type of day and another kind of day, holy and secular, pure and impure. But you can't move between those two conditions, those two states of being without some kind of ritual. That's, what all, that's where really the predominance of ritual in life really sits. That's why you have them at nighttime, in the evening time. When think about where all these rituals happen, that's where they that's where they take place. You know, the classic, and to be very literal about it, in Jewish homes, there's a mezuzah, a little case with a scroll inside with the words, some words written from the verses of the Bible. It literally sits on the passageway between outside and inside. It's neither outside nor inside, and it's slanted, and that's where you put the words, and that's where you put that. To recognize that to go from inside to outside requires a little bit of a pause. To go from married to divorced requires a conversation. What would what would a liturgy like that sound like? Yeah, and they're very they're I've seen these things live and they are tender and emotional, um, and people really appreciate the opportunity to like have a liturgy, have a container. That's what these things are. These are containers for human the human condition. And what do you charge for this? Like two hundred bucks, and this kind of you know, like plus tip or no? You get tipped. You know, if you're a part of a congregation, <laughs> it's a good. If you're part of a congregation, lots of these like life cycle events um, are part of your membership fees. As sort of a freelance um, private practice rabbi that I am, I have you know, I have a scale of these things, but um, often people are very grateful and they are. Um, generous in their what it meant to them in material in material means and you get lots of nice thank you notes too can i just run something by you when i yeah when i do weddings and i've done this sermon a zillion times um i do jacob and leah and rachel and uh i i read this text so first off people are astounded that I'm, they're just like because most of these people have never heard this text and i get up and say you know look this is the whole sermon is basically this is the story of every marriage. 
you thought you were getting this person, but um, you're getting another person and you're surprised. Eventually this happens. It might not be the day after. It might be a year. It might be two years. But Leah is the womb that saves Israel, right? It's not Rachel who's the furtive womb. So the degree that you make space for the shad, the person you didn't expect, that's where the marriage will be fruitful. It's not, you know, so it's, 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 um, and then I throw a little Jesus if it's a Christian thing at the end. Leah is the mother of Jesus. Like you have the, perfect. you know, there's so, Judah again. There's Judah. I mean, Judah, look, is it almost like when you're a golfer, it's almost like Judah is a great, you got 14 clubs in a bag, right? But if you have to take seven, you need a putter, a driver and Judah. <laughs> That's right. The Judah Club. We should invent that. We should invent <laughs> <laughs> And what if we went to the Holy Land and like dipped it in the Red Sea or the Dead Sea or something or some sort of thing? Oh, yeah. Baptized. The Jordan River. Oh, I'm now, okay, I'm going to think about this today to get some names on the what the club is going to be called. Yeah, I like it. I like it. That's beautiful, right? That's a beautiful wedding message about right the real the real things about marriage, right? Right. Not to, yeah, the real, the real things, the harder things. Um, that's what religion can give us these days, right? People are real critical about religion, but what it can give us is containers and vocabularies and languages and practices that help you navigate the human condition. I actually, I, 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 I very much sympathize and empathize with the growing anti-religious sentiment, but I'm sad for those people. To I've have seen, to create, and you argue with these people sometimes, and you are an apologist, but not one of these sort of jerk apologists. I think you tell a story of like, here's what we have. It's what I've seen you do. I mean, you're, you're like in this, and then in in the whole narrative and the matrix and the rituals, maybe God shows them. <laughs> maybe I mean, you know, this is. But you, um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I, I, I almost. Uh, describe you as a reluctant apologist because they've seen you do this with atheists and um i know it's not your natural vibe right you're not you're not naturally the guy that's running around defending god but when you do it i think you're actually at some of your best um rhetorical alone i mean i think it's really oh that's very better than most christians could do in my experience yeah that's very kind yeah i'll accept that i'm a little bit of an apologist i think definitely an apologist for pluralism right like that's that's my thing right like why can't it be yes and? I did a li- I did a little acting when I was in high school. You ever do acting, Raven Theater stuff like that? I was uh, I was Horace Vanderglder in Hello, hello Dolly. Hey, oh, nice. Dolly. Well, hello, hey, look, there's Dolly. It's so nice to have you back where you belong. Amazing. Right. So, like acting, improv, especially, right? Yes and can't reject can't reject what somebody's like putting out for you, right? But I really have some sadness about folks who have this anti-religion push and a little bit the entire sort of modern modernism in general because you have to do it yourself right you have to then create the structures and frameworks kind of on your own and find the community on your own the kinds of ways that community and societies in your group carried the weight for you of what you needed as a human we used to have a lot more of that than we do now and i i think that's that that's a cost that's a and real cost. And we talk about golf. Um, and I wish we lived in the same town because we could, there's nothing more entertaining than clergy playing golf. Oh my God, we would, we would be out four times a week. Oh God. But this thing, right, why play without 14 clubs? That's the regulation, right? And it, 14 clubs is regulation. Why play with six or seven clubs? If Even if you're an atheist, if you could have the God club in your bag, you don't need to hit it all the time. But you might be 
behind a tree having to hit a ball over a sand trap. And this club might be helpful. Yeah. Although I do know people who deliberately only carry about 10 because it makes the decision making a lot easier. Right. And that, I think, is a strategy, too, if we want to like if we want to kill the golf analogy. Um, Maybe it's not a single club that's the golf club, but maybe you have a club that's your God club. Yeah. Can I ask you this, Rabbi? Lee Trevino, famously, one of the greatest American <laughs> golfers. Best, he was in, best ball strikers in the world. He was in a, uh, in a lightning storm, and he held up a one-iron in the middle of the fairway, and he said, even God can't hit a one-iron. Could God <laughs> hit a one-iron? I mean, is this possible? Could the God of Israel hit a one-iron? This is huge. It's the wrong question. Why would the God of Israel want to hit a one-iron? <laughs> exactly. Could could sure, but why? More interesting question, Rabbi. You've uh, you've 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 taken my best joke and rabbinically turned it around on me. Um, this was great. Let's do this again. I'd like to. Yeah, this is super fun. Thanks for my uh, podcast debut. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine a better place to do it. Thank you. Really, really. Uh, I hate Clubhouse, but I really love you. Feelings mutual, my friend. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.